Well, welcome, welcome to everyone who's here. And sorry, I forgot all of y'all's names, but I know Cody's folks are here, so it's good to see you guys. I'm glad y'all are here. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn, we're in the Epistle of James. We've been studying through the Epistle of James, and we're coming up on James chapter two, verse fourteen. Is what we are, is where we're at in our study. And so we have arrived at a very significant passage. I'd say one of the most significant passages in James. And the reason that the James 2.14 and following is so significant is I think because of the abuses that, that people have used this text for. Um, I think like nearly every offshoot of Christianity that, that I've come across has used this text to um, distort the gospel. And when, it, when I say offshoots of Christianity, I mean any, any branch of, of, of claimed Christianity that does not hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mean, any other group that does not understand that we're saved by grace through faith alone. Um, there's, there's many, many groups that, that still hold on and claim to the idea that we have faith, and yes, God loves faith, and He's pleased with faith, but yes, we must go on and, and, and do deeds and works of righteousness in order to inherit God's favor, in order to inherit eternal life. And there's many that, that, that hold this view and this misunderstanding of the gospel, which, which is not grace. To add works to your justification, your salvation is not grace. But, but there are many. Um, and, and, and to leave the gospel in this way, to make this mistake... To, to add your works as, as, as part of the basis of your salvation is to, is to put yourself outside of the camp. To make this mistake, you're, you're not a Christian anymore. And, or, or you probably never were if you hold this view. And so that, that's the seriousness of the matter that we're looking at because many groups use this text that we're going to look at to justify their view that you are not saved by faith alone you, you must do um, a, a, a such and such amount of good works in order to inherit God's favor in, in salvation. Um, I just put a couple examples of these groups would be Roman Catholicism is a very outspoken group that um, does not hold to the doctrine of justification or salvation by faith alone. Uh, they actually, at the Council of Trent, which was a coming together of the Roman Catholic authorities in response to the Protestant Reformation, Canon 12 of that council specifically anathematizes anyone who holds to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They say you are condemned, you're anathema, you're accursed if you believe that man is justified by faith alone. So that's one group that, that puts themselves outside of Christian um, orthodoxy because they, they distort the gospel in this way. Um, Mormonism as well uses this text um, many times um, in evangelism with Mormonism. Mormons, they, they bring up this text as a justification of why you're not saved by faith alone, why your works also save you. Um, and I just have a note here where Joseph Smith, the, um, the man who began Mormonism, um, he, he, he so disliked the doctrine of justification by faith alone that Joseph Smith actually changed his version of Romans chapter 4, verse 5. 
And I'm just going to show you what he did with that. Um, and I'll quote you Romans 4 or 5 from the NASB. It says this. It says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So that's Romans 4 or 5. That's, that's what Paul says. To the one who does not work for his justification, the one who does not work for his salvation, but simply believes in him, meaning who believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, that faith is credited as righteousness. So it's a faith in a God who actually saves the ungodly, the ungodly who believes. And so see if, see if you can hear, see if you can catch the difference in, in Joseph Smith's translation. I'm going to read it to you. It, it's, it's in a um, King James dialect, but see if you can catch the difference. This is how Joseph Smith reads. It says, But to him that seeketh, not to be justified by the law of works, but believeth on him who justifieth not the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So in case you couldn't catch Joseph Smith's um, addition there, he says, but the one who believes on him who justifies not the ungodly. So it was beyond the, the comprehension of Joseph Smith that, that God would save an ungodly person who believes. Right? Because we know that the, the righteousness comes from God at, at faith. We, we're not good. We're not godly. We're not righteous. And therefore now God saves us. We're ungodly people who have seen our ungodliness and who believe in God and, and as Christ. And so he saves us. He justifies us. He declares us righteous, even though we're not. And so that, that's, that's just two examples there. Roman Catholicism and... Um, and Mormonism, who you will run into and who will bring this text up um, as a justification to, to not believe that we're saved by the grace of God through faith alone. And so, and so this is a grave error, um, the mistake of adding works. And, and, and this error is so heinous to God because that God's whole purpose in saving people by grace is so that he will get all of the credit, so that he will get all of the glory. God does not want it to be of us, right? That's the reason this is such a bad distortion of the gospel. The, the foundation of God's glorious gospel is that he's the one who does the saving. He's the one who did the work. He sent his son. His son died. His son rose. His son keep, kept the law, not us. And that needs to be the mindset. When you leave, when you leave from the mindset of trusting only in what God has done to, the, to trusting what you've done, you've left the gospel of grace. You've less the, go- the gospel of grace. Um, so very, si- very um, serious consequences. Very sen- serious consequences of not understanding the gospel. Not understanding that you're justified by faith alone. And I think, you know, the reason we believe this is because salvation by faith alone is just an ever-repeated truth of the scriptures. We, we, we see it from every writer. We, we, you know, hear it from Christ himself. Um, it's just all over the place. Um, well-known verses that teach this would be even John 3.16 that everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Right? Not who, who believes and then does enough works, but he who believes by faith alone. By faith alone you escape um, the, the perishing. I think even a more direct verse is Ephesians 2.8-9 that says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. 
It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. I think it can't get any clearer than Ephesians 2.8. And I'm going to go ahead and read Romans 3.27 or 28 as well. Uh, because this is the, a verse that's going to seem to directly contradict a verse in James. And so I think it would be good to go ahead and bring it to your attention so that when we come to it, you're, you're aware of the, of the tension of the rub. It's Romans 3.27. It says, Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Right? Paul maintains that you're justified, you're declared righteous, you're saved by faith apart from works of the law. Very clear. Crystal clear. So, what are we going to do when we come to a passage like we have today in James 2.14 where it says this. Hopefully you're there and you can, you can read it with me. It says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Or, or maybe it's on the same page, but look at James 2.24. He says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So hopefully you guys can see the, the issue. The issue for many is that it seems that James is directly contradicting Paul's teaching. James says that you're, that you're justified by works and not by faith alone. So what do we do in this situation? Well, the first step in scripture interpre- interpretation, I want to go through a few of uh, the hermeneutics of, of the, the, the ways that we understand scripture and the way that we study it. How do we know when we read the scriptures we're understanding it, understanding it rightly? Well, the first step, I think, is to realize that God has spoken in his word. To realize that God has spoken, God himself has spoken in his word, therefore there cannot be contradiction. It's impossible for a God who does not lie. When he speaks, it's impossible for contradiction. That should be our first grounding point of scripture interpretation, is that God cannot lie and he cannot deceive us. And then God God revealed himself as clear as he possibly could to us in the Son, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ promised that the Spirit, so it's kind of like a triune work here of of Revelation. Jesus Christ promised that the Spirit would lead his disciples in all truth. And so these are the disciples who wrote our our New Testament for us and who oversaw the, the writing of the New Testament for us. So Jesus Christ promises that the Spirit's going to lead his disciples in all truth. And so this understanding of, of God being the, the, the author of Scripture leads to what, what theologians call the analogy of the faith. The analogy of the faith. And you, you may have heard that term before, but, but what, that, what that is, is that's an understanding of truth for interpreting Scripture. What it means is that because God is the author of Scripture, that we know that God does not lie, there cannot be anything contradictory, there cannot... Um, be anything that is untrue in the Bible. And so what happened, what we do is, if you're reading through a text of Scripture and you come across something that makes another Scripture untrue or contradictory, you know, because Scripture does not lie, that you have misunderstood a verse. You've misunderstood one of the verses that seems con- contradictory. Right? That's called the analogy of faith. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. So, how do we then 
if we come to a, a contradiction, how do we determine the actual meaning? How do we know if we're understanding the, the scripture right? We, we, we first ground our minds in the, in the realization that God has spoken in his word. We know that there cannot be an error. So we know if we see an error, it, the error is in us. We're misunderstanding the word. So the second step in understanding the scriptures is we must take the context of the passage in, into, um, we must give it its full weight, the context of, of what verse we're reading. And so um, in our case here with James, we see that, that James is using some of the same language, some of the same words as Paul, right? So this is why context is important. We must understand why, how James is using the words. We must understand how Paul is using the words. And I think once we see the context of, of the verses that seem contradictory in James and Paul, we'll, we'll see how James is using the words in a different sense. And it gives the words a different meaning, even though it's the same, same words. One more point I just want to make on, on Scripture interpretation that's going to help us with our verse is this. There's a historical factor as well. There's a historical consideration that I think can, can, very, uh, can be seen very easily and very well and will actually help us in our passage. If you were struggling, if you came across James 2.14 and following, and you said, man, this seems like it goes against everything I've been taught. Every since the ever it goes against the, the the Reformation, the solas, what my church preaches, everything I've read in Paul and in the Gospels and what Jesus says, this just doesn't make sense. Well, look, think about the historical situation of what we're looking at. We're looking at at, at mainly the, the writings of Paul and of James. We know that Paul teaches that we're justified by faith apart from works. It seems that James is saying that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. But consider this. When we first started studying James, who is this James? He's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the, a leader in the New Testament church. He's the same, James of, uh, the same James of Acts chapter 15, where the Jerusalem church held a council where Paul and Barnabas came, came up and met with James, this James right here, same Paul, um, and met with Peter as well. Peter was at the church in Jerusalem as well. So all of these men very early on in the, in the history of the church, in Acts 15 it's recorded for us, but they're, 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 they're deciding doctrine, they're hamming, hammering out issues of, of the law and how it pertains to Gentiles. And so this is my point. These guys do, are not strangers to each other. Paul knows exactly what gospel James teaches and preaches. James knows exactly what gospel Paul preaches and teaches. Right, And we also know that Paul has never been uh, one to be afraid of confronting error, even amongst another apostle. Right, We know from Galatians that Paul wasn't afraid to, to confront Peter when Peter um, started erring in, in some of his gospel distinctives. And so that, that's a historical consideration, I think, that, that should comfort us in the fact that, no, Paul and, and James are not strangers. They know um, what each other's gospel is. And they, they know from a very early point in history, in church history, um, of what is the gospel, and they've worked it out amongst themselves, right? So I say all that just to say, like, these are the hermeneutics we're going we're gonna to use, that we're going to implement when we start reading James chapter 2, um, starting in verse 14. First, I'm going to remind you that Scripture is God-breathed. It cannot have errors. Second thing, we're going to consider the context of, of this passage 
the main overarching context of what we've read so far and the, the context specifically of, of James 2, 14 through 16. Okay, so my first tech, my first class pop quiz. What would be, what comes to mind for those of you who have been here in some of the other classes or those who even know the book of James, what would be an overarching um, theme or maybe even, a, maybe even an overarching verse that you've heard so far in James that makes you think or that reminds you of this is what James has been talking about. What comes to mind? What types of issues has James been talking about? You can go ahead and it's, it's an open book test. Um, you can go ahead and flip back. Um, right, so, so what comes to mind? Anybody? Trials. Trials. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's huge. I mean, I think that's what the first, what, 12 verses especially. Um, it didn't get very far into it. The first two starts talking about trials. Exactly, exactly. And so Kevin's exactly right. One of the verses that I put here was James. If you want to look at James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And this is, I think, the important part for our context. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So from that I take, yes, he's talking about trials. And he's also saying that there's, there's a time period here where we are going to be approved by God. God is going to bring trials. Our faith is going to either withstand or not withstand. We're either going to persevere in, in um, basically being doers of the word or we're not. And so there, there's outworkings of our faith that's, that is there for an intended purpose um, to, to show ourselves approved. So that, that's, that's perfect. That's a good verse. Any, anything else comes to mind? Taming the tongue. Yeah, that, that's, that's big. That's really big. And James is even going to go more in depth into that right it's after our verses here. He is going to go more in depth. So, so the, the example of, of controlling the tongue, I think, was something James brought up to show what is true religion, right? If you, if you remember that aspect of it. It's an outworking of a true faith, a true religion. It's a work that shows you have a true religion if you can tame the tongue. Right? So then again, that's that's perfectly goes along with exactly what I think James has been trying to show us. Um, one last verse maybe that I think was, was a big one, and, and a lot of people say this is the crux of the book of James, is James 1.22. James says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Right, that could be the the statement of James. Prove yourselves to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deludes themselves. Right? So James has been encouraging these churches to have a genuine faith and to show it. It, it, it says in the NASB right there, to prove yourselves to be a doer of the word. Show your faith by your actions. Or you're deceiving yourself, and, and which which I take to mean you are not really a Christian. You, you fooled yourself, right? So, so that is exactly right. That, that's our broad context. That's what James has been saying. That's been his, his focus is encouraging these churches to have a genuine faith, to work out a, a genuine faith and to, and to show it and to prove it. Right, so now let's get into the specific context. I know you all are ready to get into um, the actual text here. So verse 14 says this, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith 
but has no works, can that faith save him? And so I think maybe in y'all's Bibles, just like it does in mine, it, it begins a new paragraph. My Bible begins a new paragraph, so you've got a nice little heading there, faith and works, um, which is appropriate. I think James is starting a new, he's, he's making another point in a different way. But like I said, I think he's going to continue to say the same thing he's been saying. He's trying to say the same thing he's been saying the entire time. Um, and this verse right here, verse 14, is the key to understanding all the troublesome verses in the rest of the, in the, rest of the passage. Right? Anyone who's ever come up to me um, challenging my, my doctrine of grace by faith, um, I always ask them, what has James been saying? When you quote that verse to me, um, what has James been saying before that? What's the point he's been making? And this is the answer to any of the, the conflicts right here in this verse. So I think it's very important. If you get anything, get the, get the flow and get the um, context of what James is trying to explain here. And it's going to answer, I think, most of the issues for you. So let's, let's, let's read it again, just so we got it. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? Right. So you have someone who's, who's claiming to have faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? Right. So James here begins by asking a question about the saving value or the genuineness of a person's faith who, who merely says that he has faith, but this person has no works. And so the obvious response to James's question is what? Can that kind of faith save you if you have no works? If you say you have faith, but you have no works, the obvious answer is no. Just because somebody says they have faith does not mean that they really do. And, and this is no different than anything that the Scripture has not taught already. It shouldn't surprise us that James even speaks like this. Christ said this in Matthew seven seventeen: every, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So for me, it's, it's nothing strange to hear this verse. It seems strange when it's pulled out of context, but as far as James's point of, of, of making sure that you have a genuine faith, he's trying to tell you that just because you say you do does not mean you do. Works will demonstrate a genuine faith. Okay, so let's go on to verse 15 and following here. What James is going to do here is he's going to give us an example. He's going to give us an example to look, to look at of a merely stated faith, of someone who just says that they have faith. So let's look in this, at this faith in action, um, or more specifically a faith that's not an action, actually, in these verses. Verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So James's illustration is showing the worthlessness of words only. It means nothing. It's of no value. It's, not even, it's meaningless and not even real for you to tell somebody who needs something um, to go and be warmed, be comforted. But if you don't give them anything, nothing's going to happen. It's not, it's not genuine and it's not real. 
It's simply, he's making the comparison of a simply stated faith. A simply stated faith that has no works is worthless. It's dead. It doesn't accomplish anything. And, it, and, it's, and it's merely words. Okay? So, let's, let's go on. James, in verse 18, is going to go on to give a hypothetical argument between two people. He's going to give a hypothetical argument between two people to show the correct relationship between faith and works. In verse 18, James says this. He says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so this objector, this, 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 this person that, that James um, gives a hypothetical situation to, this objector seems to be trying to make a divide between faith and works. He seems to be saying, okay, you may have faith, I'm, I have works. And he's drawing a, he's draw, he's drawing a uh, distinction between them. Um, an, an unnecessary distinction. And so I think at the end of this verse, James is answering the person who said that, I think is what's going on. Somebody says, you have faith and I have works. I think James is answering them right here. This is what James says. James says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Right? James is saying the only way to show that you have true saving faith is by works. It's almost going to get very repetitive here, but James is hammering it home, right? So um, there's no other way. It's impossible to justify your faith without works. And of course, these—I mean, of course, these works are, are gospel-related works, um, Christian, Christian ethics, Christian morals. Um, all of these things would would be what he's what he's talking about, and. And so it, it doesn't even matter when you have this person who's stating this faith that they have, it doesn't even matter how theologically astute their language is. It doesn't matter if they're, if they're, if they're describing to you the most fundamentals of the gospel, of, of the, most, the, the, the most fundamental doctrines of the faith and how well they can artic- articulate it. That doesn't prove that they truly have put their faith into those doctrines, Right? It doesn't matter what you state. It doesn't mean that you have trusted in that, in that theology or in that doctrine. Because look at verse 19. That's what James is going to show us. James says that, he's basically saying that someone says, you believe that God is one. James says, well, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And so, like I said, it's getting repetitive, but James is continuing to correct the thinking of this man who says, I, I believe the most fundamental doctrine of the Old Testament. I believe Deuteronomy 6.4 that says God is one. Right? James says, just because you say that does not mean that you have true faith. Just because you state a very true and a very orthodox and a very necessary doctrine does not mean that you have saving faith. And James, it, it, it comes across to me as if James is shaming this man in his response. He's trying to shame this man. He's trying to humble him. He's showing this man the worthlessness of merely um, having a mental assent to the gospel. Right? This man probably, probably does believe that God is one. 
He probably fully believes that that doctrine is true. So James goes to shame this man. And he says that even the demons believe the Shema. Even the demons believe Deuteronomy 6.4. And they shudder. And so I think it's a good example to see that there is a genuine faith. The fact that the demons believe this, this doctrine and they shudder shows you that they truly believe it. I mean, how many of us shudder at the, at the thought of our holy God? These demons know good and well that God is one. Their theology is probably better than ours. But there's a difference. is that these demons have not and really cannot trust in that God. That God who is one, they cannot entrust themselves to him. There's, there's no grace there for them, right? But James wants to show this foolish man that just really, really believing something has not become saving faith until works start coming out of that. That's how you can know it's really saving faith. It'll be just as Jesus said, you must bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Your works need to be works that show repentance. Then you can take comfort in your works. Then you can, then you can I mean, take comfort in your faith. But merely just saying you believe something to people is not going to do the job. You're probably doing what James has been saying the whole time, that you're deceiving yourself. Which is, I'll do, I said it last time and I'll say it again, there's, there's no worse place you can be than self-deceived. There's no scarier place in the world. There's going to be no worse moment for anyone ever in the, in the entire existence of, of human beings is going to be that day when people think they're about to be ushered in to, the, to heaven they're waiting to see, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's, I mean, that moment is almost unthinkable. I'd rather know that I'm going to hell than to think that I'm going to heaven and show up running up to Christ and when he, and he rejects you. I mean, that you will be utterly undone. And so, and so I, I thank God for this book that, that calls us to test ourselves and, and to view our, our, view our works. Are we seeing the grace of God in our lives? Are we seeing God give us more and more and more and constant upward um, movement towards Christ? So, so how does everything sound so far? Has anything sounded like it would make you want to go home and write a letter and say that this is an epistle of straw or something like, you know? I don't, I don't think so. I think when, you, when, when you're presented with the context and you think it through, so far everything sounds just like everything Christ has said, just like Everything that, that we understand, right? But there, there's more. There, there's some, some more hard verses, so let's go on. Um, verse 21, it says this. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, does any of that language sound strange? It's, it still sounds strange. I mean, we read Romans 3 earlier. And, and on the surface, if you take that verse, verse 24, that says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you take that by itself, it is directly contradictory to what Paul has said before. Directly. It's almost the exact opposite. Right? 
So, how can this be reconciled? Well, well we discussed our, the, 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 the rules of hermeneutics before we, before we even dove in, so I want us to implement those. And these, these should be rules that you can implement at any passage that you struggle with um, in Scripture. And so I think, as, as we've already proven, I think with the verses we've already covered, it, there's a very simple answer to this, a very obvious answer to this. If we, if we view the context of how Paul was using the word justified, and we look at how the way James is now using the word justified, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll come very clear, I pray. Well, let's look. Um, first, how does Paul use the word justified? Well, in the context... If y'all want to flip there, it may help you to put your eyes on it, and I think it always does. If you want to flip to Romans chapter 3, we'll see the context of what Paul has been speaking about when he talks about someone being justified by faith. If you look, the verse I quoted was 27 and 28, um, but if you look at 23 through 26, the previous verses, this has been the discussion and you probably know it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. And so this is clearly a gospel-oriented, a, a salvific, so, soteriological use of the word justified. Paul has been describing the entire, so far the entire time he's been in the book of Romans, the sinfulness of man and how man can be made right with God, how you are justified, how you are saved. And so he says you're justified, you're declared righteous by faith alone, apart from works. On the other hand, James now, James has not, nobody said when I asked originally, what have we heard so far from James? Nobody answered. James has been describing us how we can be saved, like how we can be justified, how we're made right with God, because that isn't exactly what he's been discussing. That was, that was nobody's answer. Um, James is not teaching even here how we are justified, how, not how we are saved in that sense. He's not teaching us how we can be made right with God, how our sins can be forgiven, what James has been discussing is how we can prove that we have been saved. That's what he's discussing, and it is different. There is a difference than trying to tell people how to be saved and, and telling people and, and, and trying to teach people how they can know if they have been saved. And so I think that's the, that's the difference. James is using the word justify in, in a different sense, in a different way. And so let's see if I can justify James's use of the word justification in another way. Did anybody catch that? Nice. Thank you. Okay, so let's look at the text again. Josh. Verse 21. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So first, what does James mean that Abraham's faith was perfected by his works in verse 22? What does mature, he mean? Made mature, made manifest, made mature. What's the word there? Telos? Uh, 
or derivative of that, which means to be made complete, made full, to come to completion, right? That, that is what James is saying. And I think, I think you can see it if you read the next verse. Verse 23, I think, explains the meaning there. Verse 23 says, basically, that Abraham's faith was shown to be real by his works. The scripture was fulfilled. We know that in Genesis 15, it said that, the, the quote there is Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, by Abraham's work, this faith that it's saying he has in Genesis 15, by his good work, his, his willingness, his, his, um, his obedience to offer his son is proof. He's fulfilling the scripture which says that he was made righteous by faith alone. The, the same thing that... that uh, is, okay. Yeah. Amen. That's right. So, I think, and in case some of y'all didn't follow what I was just saying as far as um, the discussion of when Abraham was, was justified, it's very helpful to put your eyes, just like we did in Romans, let's, let's go back to Genesis 15. So would you say the argument here is that he's showing... The salvific justification is proof of the work, are you saying? I'm saying his because works are quoting, proof. He's quoting the salvific justification, the mm-hmm. use of righteousness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that quote is what gets fulfilled by his works. Right, the scripture was fulfilled that he was made righteous by faith. Okay. Right, that's what gets fulfilled by his offering of Isaac. Right, so let's so let's look at let's look at the, the basis here of let's look at what gets fulfilled. Right? Let's look at what gets fulfilled and, and it occurs here in, in Genesis fifteen. In Genesis fifteen, um, Josh, if you can, can you read like can you read fifteen um, verses one through six for us? Genesis verses Genesis fifteen. Yes, Genesis verses. fifteen verses one through six. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So, God takes Abraham outside and makes a promise to him. Abraham believes God. And it says that God credited credited it hit to him as righteousness. In other words, if I can find an easier way to say that, Abraham is given righteousness based on his faith in the promise of God. Right? Abraham is, is made just, is given righteousness, and is declared to be justified in Genesis 15 right here by trusting in, in the promises of God. Very clear. And, and look, the... If you, if you can think back still in your mind to, to um, James chapter 2, when James is saying that Abraham was justified, 
he's referring to um, Abraham offering up his son Isaac. So we have two different um, points in Abraham's life where the Bible says that he was justified. And that, that, that right there is the issue. So I think it's helpful to go look here at Genesis 15 and see when was Abraham justified and what was the basis of his justification. Abraham believed God, it says in Genesis 15, and he was credited, credited to him to his righteousness. I'm going to say reckoned from now on because that's what it says. Right? It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, so look how, look how, look at the point that Abraham receives his justification. It's so far before he offers up his son that he's still Abram at this point. He's not even Abraham yet. This is very early on in Abraham's, in Abram's call um, that he receives justification. Genesis 15, he's asking for a son. He doesn't, have it. he doesn't have the heir that he's desiring. Okay? So down, years and years and years later, he, he's given a son. His promise is answered. He's given a son, Isaac. Now Abraham, by the command of the Lord, goes to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And this is what James is referring to when James says that Abraham is justified by his works. So which is it? Is he justified by his faith in, Acts, in, uh, in uh, Genesis 15? Or is he justified um, in Genesis 22, which is years and years and years later after his initial justification? Well, I think it's, it's very simple if we look at the way that James is using the word justified. James is saying that Abraham is justified by his works, by offering his son Isaac on the, off, on the altar... What is, what is Abraham justifying? He's justifying the faith that he had in, in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God. He was justified at that point. Now, how can you justify? How, do, how has James been saying that we can justify our faith? If we say we have faith, what, was, what must we do to justify that? We must be a doer of the word. We must have works. And so this is what James is saying. Abraham believed God. And he went and did works of obedience to prove that. He justified himself by doing a, doing a, a very faithful thing, which was sacrificing his, his only son, um, knowing that God had promised that he would have um, descendants um, with a greater number than we could count. And so I, and I hope that helps because... <coughs> The point is, is the same point that James has been making. You must have works to justify your faith. And so to, to bring this home for us, um, we're called in Scripture several times. We're, we're called to, to, um, to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And this is always a helpful call. I don't think we can do it too often, but we should look at ourselves and look for the grace of God to be working in our lives we should be looking for um, a sanctification to be taking, taking place. We should be becoming more and more holy as the years go on. And we should be able to look at things that we've done in obedience to God and faithfulness to Him and repentance um, to ground our, our stated faith to people. And so that's what I think we should take home from this, as well as an understanding of this passage that is a side note that people will abuse 
So then again, just to wrap it up, because it is very, it's very much time to go. When, if you have to deal with this passage and you come to trouble, you always go back to James chapter 2, verse 14, where the argument begins. And you'll see what James is teaching. It's not how to be saved, but what do you do with somebody who says they're saved, but has no works? That's, what, that's the point of this section right here. So I hope that was helpful. I, I, I thank you guys for coming. I'm sorry for keeping you late. I really am. I just knew I had to get through this section here. Um, let's, let's go and worship together.